we all know how songs can take us back in time, right? That certain memory that comes back. And the song we sang this morning, Sing to the King, has just been burned in my memory. We were in a church several years ago, and uh, one of the younger women in the church had gotten involved in uh, Wicca and Satanism, and it had captured her heart, and it led to her being involved in a series of abusive relationships. And then she heard the gospel, and it changed her and freed her and broke her from that cycle and changed her life radically. And she had just given her testimony in church. And two weeks later, we were singing this song, and the church was packed. And I'll never forget when we reached that phrase, Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. And she jumped to her feet, fist pumping the air. And the entire, everyone immediately jumped to their feet singing in praise with her. And that's the heart of what we're looking at in Matthew 12 this morning. Jesus, the King, comes offering freedom. And yet, the reality is we're going to see people who chose to remain in their bondage instead. <clears throat> and I just want to be sure as we begin that we don't look at this as just a, an ancient text to people that have nothing to do with us today. And, and I grew up in a kind of the context where I'd hear about the Pharisees often, and it was almost portrayed like, you know, they were these evil, wicked people. We would never be like them, um, which sounds a lot like when Jesus described the Pharisees saying, I'm glad I'm not like that man, right? But the, the issue that for the Pharisees, they chose a form of bondage. Now, listen, we all live wanting to be right. And I don't mean just correct or arguing an opinion, but kind of right with the world, right with God, right with ourselves. We long to be valued and accepted and feel like the person we are is, is justified in our existence and what we do. And there's lots of different ways people go at trying to accomplish that. And one of the dangerous ways is to work trying to be good enough, to do the right things, to have rules that you can live up to that make you look in the mirror and feel like I'm okay with God and with others. And, and listen, it becomes really dangerous, one, because good enough is never good enough. That is, it keeps changing. It was one of the scariest conversations I had. Many, many years ago, the AVP at the time who hired me to teach at Cedarville, and I just remember this phrase he said, and it haunted me. He said, you've started your career. You are now on a race to stay ahead of obsolescence. You hear that? You're going to spend your whole life trying to keep up so you're not passe and out of touch and about to be replaced. And yet, any of you that have worked hard to get a job or start a business or do anything like that, who over time find that the company shifts and new policies and new practices and new, and suddenly you're fighting again to try to keep up, it's true in parenting. When you feel like you just get a handle on how to relate to your kids when they're young, and then they grow up a little more and they want a little more independence and you have to adjust and respond differently and eventually they decide they want to leave, right? And it's this constant cycle of always trying to keep up, always wanting to be good enough. And for the Pharisees, what started as good, really wanting to follow God and honor Him, became a system or a code by which they could look in the mirror and say, I'm good because I do these things, and to be able to compare themselves to others and say, well, I'm better than them, so I must be okay. Can you just hear? That treadmill of life is exhausting, right? You've experienced it, right? You've been there. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, come to me and find rest for your souls. Get off the treadmill and turn to Jesus as the source of hope, the source of forgiveness, 
the sense of peace that can only come from Him. That's the heart of what we're looking at today in that the King can free us from what was most significantly, and that is the bondage of our hearts to sin. Let me give you a snapshot of where we're going to go. The key idea today is simply that Jesus the King gently calls for our humble acceptance and submission to His authority. And notice the importance of that term, Jesus the King gently calls. It's not coercion, it's not manipulation, He's not going to force us, but He calls us to respond to Him in humility and repent and trust Him. And the truth is that those who follow Him find rest for their souls, and those who don't face very severe judgment without Him, because our good enough is never really good enough. And ultimately, there's no middle ground. Jesus says, if you're not with me, then you're against me. And what we're going to find today as we look at the different types of people who come through in these stories is that we're forced, we're confronted with a decision of how we're going to respond to Jesus. Now, let me give you the highlight of how the story flows. In Matthew chapter 10, we found that Jesus sent out his apostles and said, go. And as you go, this is what's going to happen. You're going to create controversy, because my teaching is going to be controversial, and you're going to face opposition and ultimately persecution. And after he does that in chapter 10, chapter 11 and 12 are just examples of that happening. His disciples going out and Jesus himself with his message facing opposition and even rejection. And I don't want you to miss that there was a, a significant difference between last week and this week in terms of how Jesus responded to people. And that is John the Baptist, in prison, actually about to face death for Jesus, goes, are you really the one? And he sends his disciples saying to Jesus, are you really the one? Now, this is John who had been preaching. Jesus was the one. He was the promised king. He was the Messiah who would come. And in the midst of his suffering, he said, are you really the one? And Jesus said, look at the Scriptures. Look at how I'm fulfilling them. It's true. And sent back that message so that Jesus, the John, even in prison, facing that kind of persecution, could find rest, trusting in Jesus. But today, instead, we're going to find people who resist him and reject him and fight against him and try to get other people to fight against him. And for them, he says, there's a harsh warning. The honesty of admitting, God, this is hard, is this really true in the midst of suffering and trials is one thing. And Jesus commended John for being one of the greatest in the kingdom. But instead, to say, I'm going to stay on the treadmill because I know I can control that and I'm going to be good enough myself. There's a warning that there's great danger. And what we find is examples of that today with the Sabbath controversy and then those who chose to blaspheme Jesus and accuse his authority actually coming from Satan. But then in between that, you find the comments from Matthew, if you will, the narrator comments. So we have the passage we just read from the end of chapter 11 where Jesus invites people to come to find rest for their souls. And then right in the middle, Jesus' authority and his humility is given very clearly, and then it finishes with Jesus' recognition or call to actually join his family. And this may sound strange for a sermon like this, but I want to start in the middle. And I want you to see this because the middle is like the hinge that the first story and the last story hang on. If you understand the middle, you understand what the stories mean and what they represent. And so let's take a look at the middle of this chapter, verses 15 through 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known 
This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now notice just a couple things from this. First, this phrase, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. We've talked about how much Matthew quotes the Old Testament. This is the longest quote of the Old Testament in the entire book. And this focus here on what Isaiah promised is being fulfilled. And so the first observation is Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises. Last week when John the Baptist said, are you really the one? He said, look at what the Scriptures promised. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the gospel is preached to the poor. He was the fulfillment of Scripture and His signs, His miracles authenticated that. And here we're told that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. His claim to be the divine King fits with all of the Old Testament promises. But we also find Matthew very clearly here pointing out what Jesus' authority is. That is, my beloved with whom I am well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. Now, maybe if you've been following along in Matthew, this rings a bell. Because Matthew's used this quote earlier, just a small part of it, and that was back in Matthew chapter 3 after Jesus' baptism. When as Jesus is baptized, we see the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on Jesus, and then a voice from heaven pronouncing, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then Matthew here extends that quote again, that the declaration of Him being the divine Son is there, but also that His source of power is from heaven itself. The Spirit of God is upon him. And that becomes important to understand how significant the response of the Pharisees is. The Spirit of God is on him. That's the authority for him to do the miracles. He is the promised king, the divine king. But also, the focus for Matthew on this fulfillment is the gracious rule of this king, that he comes in humility. Notice Jesus is the answer to God's promises that a king would come, that that king would establish his rule, and the rule would never end. In Jesus, the king, he's present now for them, but not in the way they expected. They expected a political leader or a military leader. For the Jews, they wanted freedom from the oppression by Rome, and that was a serious thing for them. They longed to be free from that kind of oppression, but instead of a political or an economic leader or a military leader, Jesus' ministry revealed that was not the greatest need. The greatest need instead was dealing with the sin in their hearts, the sin in our hearts, and dealing with the rule over our hearts held by Satan. And so Jesus' approach was really different than what was expected. He came humbly. He called followers to a life of suffering rather than clamoring for our rights. He called to change them from the inside out and then to a life of service that would involve controversy and persecution, what Jesus himself is going to experience in this chapter. But even then, notice that Jesus responded in really unexpected ways, right? When the Pharisees start rejecting him and resisting him and arguing against him, he could have harnessed the forces of heaven against them. He could have destroyed them on the spot. All it would have taken was a single word, and it could have been over for them. And instead, Jesus responds with non-retaliation. Jesus withdraws from them and ministers to his family. 
phrases here. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. That is, he's not going to force people to accept his claims as the divine king. He's not going to force people to be his subjects. He will not use manipulation or coercion, though he obviously had the power to do so. But instead, the fulfillment of this messianic promise is going to be involved in this humble, gentle, gracious manner which is portrayed with an offer, with an invitation. And listen, this is going to just set the stage for what we're going to find in the rest of the book, right? His approach of non-retaliation. Ultimately, this suffering servant, as promised from Isaiah, is going to suffer and die. While gently calling all those who would hear his voice to come to him and find rest in their souls, to learn from him, to submit to him, to find salvation, as they resisted and fought against him and ultimately killed him, he did not resist and he did not fight. Jesus has sent his disciples out, and they're now facing this kind of opposition as well. And he hears the fulfillment of prophecy, withdraws from them without immediately destroying them, and ministers to his people. Now, what we're going to find then is three different stories. It's kind of like uh, two different acts of the play with a couple of scenes in the first one, with three different people having needs and Jesus responding to those needs. And then we'll find the Pharisees responding to how Jesus responded to them. Okay, sorry if that was confusing. Jesus responds to a person in need, and then we see how the Pharisees reacted to him, and then Jesus and Matthew together make commentary and help us understand the point of this. And it's interesting that each of these three stories, the need gets more significant, the need gets greater. The first one is going to be simply the disciples being hungry. The second one is going to be a man with a withered hand, which meant in their context he would be unclean for certain religious observances, kind of an outsider from the community, um, and that would inhibit his work abilities. But the third one really ups the ante, and that is it's a man possessed by demons who is blind and mute. Jesus is going to respond to each of these needs, and then we'll see how the Pharisees respond. But again, we have to be sure that when we read this, we continue to see ourselves in the story. And again, I often hear the word Pharisees, we make it something dirty, something evil, something that we would never be like, how horrible they were. But just consider, we face the same kind of temptations they do. I've mentioned to you this way we feel the need to always live up to expectations and always do the right thing. We face that struggle. Why? Because we have within us this sense of needing to be right, to be justified for being here, to feel good, to feel valued, to feel accepted. And part of that keeps pushing us forward, but we all know, again, it can exhaust us. I mean, I watched several years ago when a college football team won the national championship, and they're interviewing the athletes on the stage, and the, half, or the running back that got the MVP that night, they interview, and they say, so what are you going to do next? And they expect him to say, I'm going to Disney World, or I'm going to go celebrate. And instead he says, tomorrow morning I'll be on the practice field getting ready for next year. You understand, it just never ends, right? And it can wear us out. But I have to say, that can even be true in the church, and that can be true as we think about our hearts and our spiritual lives as well. Um, I've grown up in the church, I've been around it long enough and served in it long enough to know that things change in the church, right? Styles of worship change. Leadership models change. The way we organize classes and the way we organize our entire church changes. Theological conversations shift, whatever is the hot button of the day. What's current one day is suddenly out of date, and it's an ongoing challenge to feel current. 
But that danger can become a game to us spiritually, that somehow if we say the right things, dress the right way, do the right things, that then we belong and we're okay with God. Instead of recognizing here that we say that's not the way we're supposed to live, but instead come to Jesus and find rest from all of that, that the only way to be made right is through Jesus and submitting to Him and following His call. We all face the same challenge in different ways and to different degrees, but I want to be sure as we hear this story that we see ourselves in the mirror as well. So let's look at the first. But we have to kind of start where Matt left us last week, that's Matt Bennett preaching Matthew, when we saw that in Matthew 11, 25, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now consider the irony now of where the controversy starts. Jesus, having just promised rest, rest for their souls, now finds controversy on the day of rest. On the Sabbath itself, which was intended purposely to provide true, genuine spiritual rest, it had become a burden. I mean, think about this. The Sabbath was given so that people would set aside vocational work, what you do to put food on the table, and instead find physical and emotional and spiritual refreshment by focusing on God, to remind yourselves what's really important, to listen to Him, to worship Him, to engage community. It was not a day of inactivity, but it was a different kind of activity. Rather than focusing on our work and the things we need to do to keep up with life, instead focusing on God and His people to put our hearts back in the place where we would worship Him, why to love Him, and to love other people, to keep God first in our life, to keep the weight of the world off of our shoulders. The Sabbath was to admit that God is God, and He'll keep working when I stop. And surprise, the world will go on without me when I stop working. God can take care of it. It was that sense of rest and trust in Him that allowed us to keep the right focus and keep going forward for Him with the right heart, to find rest from the day itself. But what began as something good was torqued or twisted instead to become something very different than God intended. And that's the issue here when they start challenging, as first the disciples who are hungry start picking grain to eat. And they immediately accuse them, saying, you are violating the Sabbath. Now, I need to give you some ideas of what was going on with this. And, and I went back and did more reading, and I won't scare you. If you saw my notes, you'd get scared, because I have several pages of examples of this. And I left it there to remind me how dense and challenging this whole conversation becomes of these Sabbath laws that have been created by the Pharisees. Okay? It starts good trying to say, how do we observe this day to really honor God and fulfill it? it became, what are the rules I can keep up with? What are the rules let me measure other people? Now, you will find commonly, even as that discussion extends today to Orthodox Jews, there's like 39 different categories they look at. And I, I want to give you several examples. Okay, I'm not going to go through all of these, but I just want you to get a feel of what it's like. One of the categories is plowing. Okay, now that makes sense in a farming culture. You're not going to plow and do your work. But they said, if you drag your chair through the dirt, you would create furrows, and that would be plowing. 
Because even if you weren't actually putting the seeds in the ground, a seed might fall there and grow, and you would be responsible for causing that to happen, which is why you're not allowed to pour water out on the ground outside, where maybe, maybe even the indentation it creates would be a place for a seed to come and start to grow. You then would be plowing by doing those things. Or reaping, which we know is taking a plant or part of a plant from its source of growth. Okay? So you're gathering, if you will. Because of that, the rabbis said that climbing a tree is forbidden because you might break off a branch when you're climbing the tree by mistake. Or riding an animal is forbidden because without thinking, you might be inclined to break off a branch to hit the animal, and so you'd be tempted to do something wrong, so you're not allowed to ride the animal either. Now, gathering, like strawberries or gathering apples, is not okay if you're out in the field or the place of harvest, but it is okay if you're in your home. So if you drop a bowl of apples in your kitchen, you can pick it up and gathering it because that's not what harvest it. But if you're out in the field or in the apple orchard and you drop your basket of apples, you're not allowed to pick them up on the Sabbath. Or cooking. Any method of heating food is prohibited. But notice for them, cooking is different than preparing. That is, you can prepare a salad because the form of the vegetables doesn't actually change, but if you heat it up and cook it, the vegetables will soften and take on a different form, and so you're therefore violating the Sabbath. Or trapping, which we don't have a whole lot of trappers in this community, I know, I know of some, but the idea now of if trapping is not allowed, right, like hunting, and that's where you'd gain your income or your way of living, then can a fly be trapped on the Sabbath under a cup? When the fly's buzzing around, are you allowed to take your cup and trap it or stop it? And there was actually debate about that. <laughs> You're getting the idea. Certain animals that are considered really slow-moving, mov you could capture like snails or those kind of things because that wasn't the same of capturing. But then they debated whether trapping is actually removal of liberty or actually some activity of like hunting. Writing is completely forbidden because that's used for contracts and for work. Construction is not allowed. Things like, they'd be specific, you can't put a board on a couple uh, crates to form a bench. Now, it's only forbidden, though, if it's going to be permanent. Even if you didn't mean to have permanent intent, but it does become permanent, it'll be a risk. So, for example, you can close and lock a door, but you can't set up a pop-up tent. Because if you did, it might be considered permanent. Even if you weren't standing or staying in it a long time, it might end up being that that's the case, and so then you would have violated the Sabbath. Any kind of adding fuel to a fire or lighting a flame so all the candles for the Sabbath had to be lit the day before. Okay, now this plays also when you come into today with electricity, the question of turning on and off a light. And Orthodox Jews would say no, and I've heard of occasions where people would have friends who would actually come in and turn on the lights for them. But interestingly, while you're not allowed to turn on the light because that would be work, you are allowed to set a timer the day before and have the timer come on so you can use the light, even though you weren't the one who turned it on. In terms of completion, the final act of completion, which is kind of an abstract, hard to understand, anything that brings something to its final state is considered completion and prohibited. So if you have a newspaper and the edges weren't cut and together, if you separate those pages, that would be a violation or a prohibition. Now, you can have the paper, you can read it, you just can't separate those pages. Stapling, of course, would be anathema. Okay, because stapling puts the paper together and finishes the project. Musical instruments, you can have the guitar, you can play the guitar, but you can't tune the guitar because that brings it to its final state, which might have made some differences this morning in the music we heard. 
Traveling becomes really interesting because you are only allowed to travel a, a certain distance from your home. And then to kind of, if you will, to get around this, they de defined very carefully what their home was. In some places I've seen, they would define their home as their cloak that they were wearing. So you could travel a certain distance, take off your cloak, take a little break, put it back on, and then you could travel another day's Sabbath day's journey. Or where you eat your food is where your home is. So if you the day before set up food stations along the way, you could travel and stop and have a meal, which now becomes your home, allowing you to travel another day's journey. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at? Just the way these became games. Okay, you're not allowed to turn on a light. So if you today open your refrigerator and the light comes on, you violated the Sabbath. Now, if the motor comes on, that's allowed, even if it comes on later, but you're not allowed to turn on the light. So actually, I've had a friend who had a meal with an Orthodox Jew, and they would unscrew the light bulb in the refrigerator so they could open the refrigerator and use the refrigerator without violating Sabbath by turning on the light. Carrying things is completely forbidden, so it, you can only have the things that you wear. But now, for example, if you have a an egg or a hard-boiled egg, you can carry it in your house or give it to someone, but if you cross the threshold and carry it outside, you've now violated the Sabbath. I'll, I'll give you another example. A professor I had in seminary spent a year in Israel studying the language, and as he did, he was telling us about the day that they were in their tour bus, and they started driving really crazy, and that says something, because I've been in Israel on a tour bus. They're always driving crazy, but even more extreme, they pulled into the campground where they were staying. The tour guides jumped out of the bus quickly, because it was almost the start of Sabbath, and took ropes and staked it in the ground to mark out the boundaries of their house. Interestingly, the ropes went into the ground, across the beach, and into the lake. And they spent the entire day scuba diving. But they were in their home. Okay. I, I needed to tell you several of those so you could get a feel of what was going on when Jesus is going to respond and say, they're guiltless. If you had read the Scriptures, if you had known the real meaning of Scriptures, you'd know that they're not guilty of violating God's law. The only thing they're guilty of is violating the rules that you've created to make yourself feel self-righteous, to make yourself feel better, to be able to show that you're better than other people by the way you live. And so in the first, with this provision, Jesus protects his disciples. It is interesting here when he also then says, if you really understood this law, you'd understand what's desired is mercy, not sacrifice. And the Lord Jesus, he's... The Son of Man, He is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's kind of ironic that Jesus is saying, you got questions about the laws for Sabbath? Maybe you should be asking the Lord of Sabbath, the one who created the day and the laws in the first place. And I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, this is going to seem a lot more harsh the further we go, but understand what that would sound like here. The disciples are hungry, right? They're traveling. They're without food. Don't you think the thing would be to say by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to say, you're hungry, you shouldn't be picking grain today, so why don't you come to my house? I have plenty to share with you. Instead, the laws were used to judge other people and keep them in their place without ever seeing the needs of people around them. The very day to push us back to loving God right and loving other people was used to manipulate other people so they could feel good about themselves. And Jesus says... His disciples are completely guiltless. But then, 
again, it gets raised in terms of the significance of the event of what they're facing. This man with the withered hand, and they now use that situation to try to accuse him. They ask his questions so that they can accuse him. Now, catch this again. They're trying to trap Jesus. Matthew makes their intent really clear. And notice the complete disregard for the man. Okay, his withered hand again would have made him unclean in their community, kept him from certain religious observances, would have hindered his work, providing greater need for his family. And notice implied in the question they ask, catch what they didn't ask. They didn't say to Jesus, can you heal him? There was not a heart of compassion for him saying, Jesus, you're here. Is it possible that you can heal him? They assumed that Jesus could heal him. And instead of having any sense of joy in that, or any hope that the man would experience healing, they use it as an occasion to trap Jesus with complete disregard for the man. You get pictures of the heart that has no mercy and no compassion. Jesus responds, basic ways. You violate this rule yourself. Which of you would have a sheep who fell in a pit and you wouldn't take care of it? You have more concern for your animals and your livelihood and your wealth than you do for this person who's suffering. And then he turns to the man, and Matthew's very specific that the hand is healed fully. He uses those phrases. It was restored healthy like the other. And Jesus asked him to stretch it out, even to show that. And again, you would think that the religious leaders, that at this point there would be a sense of joy for them. But Mark tells us real clearly what's going on. Matthew stays really focused on the signs as the authority of Jesus and what it means to follow him. Mark adds something that just helps us understand what Jesus was seeing. When the same question is asked, they were silent, and he looked around at these Pharisees with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. They refused to hear the message of Jesus. They refused to repent. They chose to try to make themselves good enough by their laws and their behavior. It's not an issue of confusion or misunderstanding or someone who's misguided. These are religious leaders with no heart for God and no mercy for others. And the issue is their hard hearts and the, the control Satan has over them. And Jesus calls them to repent and turn to the Lord of Sabbath, the one who offers rest. Jesus' response is fulfilling prophecy. It's non-retaliative. It's not being forced or manipulated. This gentle call for us, for them to come and submit to him to find rest. Man, you would expect at this point that these religious leaders would respond, would at this point hear the message, and instead, what do we see? The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees go out, now plotting, to kill Jesus. And that's the point where Matthew inserts the commentary we began with, when he says, at this point, Jesus withdrew and cared for his followers, and it fulfilled the Old Testament promise. Jesus truly is God. The source of his authority comes from God, but he's not going to force you to accept that. He gently calls you to submit to him. And with that assurance that Jesus fully is God, think about now how the Pharisees respond when they accuse him of blasphemy. They're saying, your source is not from God, your source is from Satan. Now, we've got to understand the seriousness of this person's need has really ramped up, okay? We've moved from 
the disciples being hungry, to the man with the withered hand, to now someone who is demon-possessed, who um, is blind and is mute. And Matthew, in this single statement, with such unbelievable understatement, just says, and Jesus healed him. The man now speaks, the man now sees, the oppressions of the demons is gone. And what would you expect a right response to be from the religious leaders? Some sense of joy, some sense of gratitude, some sense of rejoicing. Do you understand staying on the treadmill of self-justification keeps from you the joy of seeing God's work in the lives of others or in yourself? Now, the people responded with what is the right question? Can this be the son of David? They see the signs, and this question is just really a statement of, this is the one fulfilling all the promises. Look at the king. This was a loaded phrase for them. This is the promised one. It's the king. It's the one who will establish the kingdom of God in their midst. He's fulfilling the prophecy. But when the Pharisees see it, they reject it and instead say he's doing this by the power of Satan. Jesus responds saying, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out these demons, and Matthew has just told us that's exactly the case, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is here. Instead, he says, anyone who commits blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, here, ultimately, blasphemy is taking the work of God and attributing it to the power of Satan, clearly. And, and I've watched and heard the discussions over time where people wonder what this unpardonable sin might be in fear that maybe there's a sin I've committed that now God could never forgive me of. And let me just say, if you're asking that question, that shows you haven't committed it, <laughs> okay? The fact that you would have the question and be desirous to submit to Jesus and honor Him shows that you've not committed the unpardonable sin. This is a hardness of heart that rejects the call of Jesus, that over time becomes so callous it refuses to ever respond. And Jesus says there's eternal judgment waiting for those people. Now, it's a warning for us, but maybe not in the way we often think about it. And He continues. Let's look, he says, for these Pharisees, let's just look at the fruit. You can tell a tree by its fruit, and we see their fruit. And, and when he said this, Jesus said, look, if I cast out the Spirit, uh, if it's by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. If, it, if it's the power of Satan, I'm divided against myself. That makes no sense at all. But instead, if it's by the Spirit of God, then what? Then the kingdom of God is here. And what we're seeing all through Matthew's explanation is their hardness of hearts that rejected that. Remember when John the Baptist began his ministry in Matthew chapter 3? Do you remember the concise summary of what he had to say? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. That phrase is echoed again in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus now begins preaching and we're told that Jesus' message was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And here... He says, now, the kingdom of God is in your midst, and you're rejecting it. They refuse to repent, staying on the treadmill of self-justification. And Jesus says, calls them what they are, you brood of vipers. You're saying, I'm from Satan, you are the seed of Satan. You are the children of Satan, you brood of vipers. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, this is amazing, then why don't you show us a sign? 
Now, listen, Matthew's given us just a sampling of what Jesus has done in the last few chapters. All we see is sign after sign after sign, which they consistently rejected because of their hard hearts. And then they come back again and say, give us a sign. And he says, there's no sign that's going to be given except Jonah. He says, Jonah, three days in the belly of a fish, and you will see the Son of Man three days in the belly of the earth. You understand what's coming? The sign they're going to see is as they persist through the rest of this gospel when they fight against him and gather opposition and ultimately kill him. And three days later, he raises from the dead. And he said, that's the only sign that you're going to see. But he warns them about the fact that they are seeing him now and seeing the miracles and really hearing the voice of God and rejecting it. And he says, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment against you. <clears throat> they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Something greater than Jonah's here. Jonah's message was so brief. Uh, and, and the book of Jonah highlights that he gave the smallest message he could to these people. And then we're told in great detail that from the poorest to the king, everybody repented in sackcloth and ashes. Those Gentiles, unlike these Jews that are offended at that message, they responded, they're going to judge you because they heard the message, and now Jesus himself, the divine king, is here, and you're rejecting him. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, when she heard about the great wealth and all the blessing of Solomon, she went to see him. And after she had seen everything, her conclusion was, and I quote from 2 Chronicles 9, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on his throne as king for the Lord your God. Because your God loved Israel and would establish them forever, he has made you king over them that you may execute justice and righteousness. She saw the blessing of God and the power of God, and she blessed God for it. And then he says, if you take an unclean spirit and it's cast out, give it time, he'll go gather his friends and come back, and that place is going to be worse than it was before. Now, in its simplest form, Jesus has just cast out an unclean spirit. He's just cast out a demon. He's telling these people, you've seen that power and you've rejected it? When I'm not here and this power isn't being seen, it's going to be worse for you than in the beginning. And then he finishes this section with just what I would call a simple invitation or promise to join his family. Extending out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brother, for whoever does the will of God, or that does the will of my Father in heaven, is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And the promise that those who follow him actually receive the blessing of being part of his family. Ultimately, Jesus the King gently calls for our humble acceptance and our submission of his authority. Those who follow him find rest for their souls and become part of his family. Those who reject him face very severe judgment. For those who have heard his word, who've seen the truth and choose to resist and stay on the own treadmill of us doing life ourselves and trying to be good enough. Now, let me just, I'm not sure where each of you stands today. This has been a challenge and a helpful way for me to end up preaching this passage because I've just, there, God has forced me over the last month to really reflect on some ways that hits home for me because I know how easy it is to step back on the treadmill because that's a tendency of my own heart. To worry more about what other people think and doing things right enough and good enough to be okay with God instead of resting in Him and finding rest in Jesus. For any of you who are followers of Jesus, this is the invitation to come and find rest in Jesus, the only perfect one, that in him, through faith, there can be forgiveness of sins and true trust in him. But we can't look at this passage without the caution for those who have heard this message and have cho chosen not to respond to it. 
which really means they've chosen to reject it. Whether you've grown up in a home where your parents have told you the gospel and the stories of Jesus, whether you've seen it lived out in friends around you or family who are trying to share the gospel with you and you see the evidence of what's in their life, but you choose to resist, please hear that there's great, severe judgment ahead, warning that you have heard the message and seen even the testimony of God's followers and said, no, I'll stay on the treadmill instead. And he's warning that will never be good enough. It'll only face future judgment. May God help each of us respond in ways that would be appropriate to this great truth that Jesus, the King, is here. He's come. His kingdom has been established. And through his power, the rule of Satan can be defeated in our hearts. We can be freed from the danger, the fears, the judgment of sin. And he gently calls us to respond. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this message in your word. We recognize the great power of sin and our inability to overcome it, and yet we are so grateful for Jesus, the true king who has come to defeat Satan and to establish his rule in our hearts and to make us a part of a kingdom that will be eternal and to let us be a part of his family. Father, I ask that you would help all of us to look honestly in the mirror and to work to see not ourselves, but instead to see Jesus and to submit fully to him. May your spirit work in ways that would please you and draw us closer to you as we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen.